Lloyd Kahn, welcome to the new school. Thanks. Lloyd Kahn is the editor-in-chief of Shelter Publications, an independent and eclectic publishing house based in Bolinas, California. Uh, he has published uh, 22 books over the past 32 years, of which his book Homework, Handbuilt Shelter, is the most recent. And in 1965, Lloyd quit a job as an insurance broker in San Francisco to become a carpenter. In 1968, he became the editor for Shelter of Whole Earth Catalog, and he started gathering information on hand-built houses. In 1971, he moved to Bolinas, and over the years, he has built four houses himself and uh, lives with his wife, Leslie, in a truly beautiful uh, hand-built home in Bolinas. So in the course of uh, Lloyd's work uh, exploring hand-built houses, uh, he also thought a lot about the cultural movements that uh, have taken place over that period of time, and particularly the formative cultural movement in the 1960s. So we're here with Lloyd today to explore what really happened in the 1960s with a live uh, audience of uh, friends here in the small town of Bolinas. And with that, uh, Lloyd, tell us a little about what you think happened in the 60s. Um, well, I grew up in San Francisco. Um, I was born in San Francisco, and uh, I went to high school at Lowell, which was in those days was in the Haight-Ashbury. Uh, and I'll just give you a, enough of my background to try to make it relevant to... Um, the 60s and what I saw happen then. Um, I was, uh, I ran a newspaper in the Air Force for two years in Germany, uh, and that's kind of how I got into uh, the idea of publishing uh, from 1958 to 1960. And um, when I got out of the Air Force, I came back to San Francisco and went to work as an insurance broker uh, with my dad and my brother and my uncle. And uh, pretty, uh, and I, with my ex-wife, I had a, uh, we had a, um, an old country place that we'd bought in Mill Valley that had a couple of cottages on it. And right away I started uh, building and remodeling. And um, I liked building. I actually had some experience building starting when I was 12 years old, helping my dad build a house. And uh, when I was in college, I'd worked as a carpenter. And so um, I mentioned all this building stuff and I'm going to talk about building a lot because that was sort of my uh, role in the, with the Whole Earth Catalog and, and uh, with what was going on those days, at least in this part of the world. Um, so I, I, started, uh, I started building in Mill Valley on, on the weekends and at nights. And um, about uh, maybe 1963 or so, uh, I actually, what I should do is, can I get a, can I get over to that projector without tearing off the microphone? Yeah, I'm going to turn that on. Um, things started happening in San Francisco in about '63, I'd say '62 or '63, and uh, when I was an insurance broker, I pretty quickly, you know, there was there were there was a lot about it that I didn't like, especially wearing a suit and a necktie. And uh, I would, uh, uh, my lunch hour, I'd wander up to Upper Grant Avenue 
uh, and look at, the, you know, go to City Lights and the Coexistence Bagel Shop was uh, around in those days. And I was kind of intrigued by the bohemian lifestyle. And um, it was something sort of pulling at me to, to uh, you know, to go in another direction. And um, so uh, I, I guess in, I guess maybe the first inkling I had of something really quite different going on was uh, a guy that I worked with in the insurance business had a 12-year-old daughter, and she had a, and I'd heard this, I was driving home one day, and I, I, was, I used to listen to rhythm and blues on the radio, and I heard this song come on, I thought it was a rhythm and blues song, and it turned out to be by a group called the Beatles, and um, this little girl, Janie, had a, had a Beatles record, so I borrowed the record and took it home. And I think Hard Day's Night must have come out in 63 or 64. Um, but anyway, I, I dragged my wife and kid to a drive-in theater and saw Hard Day's Night. And that was kind of like the start of, you know, of, of something different going on than the artistic uh, uh, atmosphere of San Francisco, the, the beatniks, that something different was happening with a, with a younger generation. And um, what I'm going to do here is show you some, what the, what I was doing in, in building, and I hope it comes across okay. I'll describe it maybe for the people who are only going to hear this on the radio. Uh, this was the first place I built in Mill Valley. This was a, um, a carport that uh, I started this right as, you know, after I got out of the Air Force, and this had a this had a sod. Th this roof was is soil. And um, it was, uh, I planted it with um, chamomile so that in the spring it had white blossoms on it. And it was a, a, a studio, it was a, a, a two-part studio. And um, then the next thing I did, this was getting, th this was probably around 62. I had a friend who was a, a, uh, an architect and he designed a, a very extensive remodel of the old summer cottage that we lived in. And this book here, which I've carried for years and years, and it's got marks on it here where rats chewed on it in Big Sur, uh, was a, was what my, his, his name was John Stoneham. And he did this book, and it was a rendering of the house that I was going to build. And I, I'm, I've got a bunch of books out there for you to look at. Um, and, and to just take a look at this book, if any of you are interested, especially you, Arthur, um, if you, any of you are interested in drawing, um, because it, it, it's just a beautiful uh, a beautiful job and so anyway I got involved in building and I, I really kind of got in over my head um, I didn't have that much experience building and this was a difficult building it had these these were um, Does that show? yeah these these were like 12 foot high poured concrete walls and so I was um, I was working in the city and uh, uh, getting off kind of playing hooky, getting off at maybe 4 o'clock and rushing home and working until it was dark. And um, while I was building that house, an architect from Mill Valley uh, saw the house and he liked the... Uh, I was using used uh, bridge timbers. That, I was using actually railroad ties at the time for building. And he liked what I was doing. And he had a job in Big Sur building a house out of bridge timbers for a very wealthy... Um, woman who she was a, an heiress of the of uh, a family that owned a third of Lockheed and they had a 400 acre ranch uh, in uh, Big Sur so uh, 
concurrent with building, um, I was, more and more things were starting to happen in San Francisco. And uh, Haight Street was, the, the, actually the, the psychedelic shops started out on Lower Haight, and then probably in 64, I guess, they moved to Upper Haight. And then there was kind of an explosion of, of things going on. And I decided to take a, uh, uh, a, a sabbatical from the insurance business, and it was nobody understood, and they didn't like the fact. I said, I'm going to take a month off, and I, uh, I caught a bus down to Bakersfield. I always wanted to hop on a freight train, and I hopped on a freight train and rode over to the desert, and from the desert I started hitchhiking, and I was kind of going to cross the country and see what was happening and think over whether I really wanted to be an insurance broker for the rest of my life. And um, so uh, I, I, I went across the country, I went to New York, where again, where things were happening, not quite the same way as in San Francisco, and um, uh, I, I went out to visit my cousin who lived in Provincetown, and on the way back I ended up going to a Bob Dylan concert, and that was when he was just switching from folk music to um, rock and roll. And I didn't know anything about it, and I never was really that fond of his folk music. And, uh, but I'd met these uh, students at the Rhode Island School of Design, and they said, you know, come on and stay with us in our loft, and we're going to this concert tonight, do you want to come along? So I went to the Dylan concert, and I, had a, I was shooting pictures then, and I, had a, I was shooting black and white. And what happened was he did the first half of the concert was um, folk music, and the second half, uh, he brought out some guys to the stage, and uh, they started playing, and a lot of people got up and left. And, um, and now, and, and I, I shot pictures, and I was right up at the front of the stage. I mean, that was how loose things were then. I mean, I just had a camera, and I said I was from a newspaper, and the cops said, okay. And I've got some great pictures of him, and I realize now it was Robbie Robertson and uh, the guys from the band. So anyway, that, that was a great experience. And um, so I came back home. Uh, I, I, the first n uh, morning I was home, I looked out at the traffic on the freeway going into San Francisco, and I quit my job as an insurance broker. And I went to work as a builder. And, uh, and I loved not having to wear a suit. And um, I started actually, even then, I started scrounging materials. I got a pickup truck, and I uh, started uh, you know, looking in debris boxes in San Francisco. Back then, people weren't really using recycled materials that much, and uh, so there was a lot of stuff available to just pick up. And so, at, and then at this, and by '65, things were really um, were really moving along in San Francisco. And uh, the thing in in 1987, um, and that was. Well, that was a long time ago. But anyway, in 1987, the first articles started appearing on the 60s, the retrospective articles. And I read the articles and I thought, you know, this isn't really what happened in San Francisco. Um, this, doesn't, this isn't what I saw happen. And I was, um, I was like 10 years older than the baby boom uh, guys. So I had a little bit of, I had a different perspective um, than the people that were younger than me who were at the center were causing all of this to happen. And anyway, during, up until the summer of love, it was just a, the hate, hate street was just an amazing world. And 
I really never, I've hardly ever seen anybody write about it. To, uh, you know, I, I ended up concluding that most of the people that write about it or wrote about it weren't there. Um, they came along later and or they had a, they had a, a lot of the, the books that got written about the era were politically oriented. It was like the free speech movement and it didn't really talk about what I saw, which was this amazingly wonderful, open, loving, uh, uh, all-encompassing spirit of, uh, I think a lot of it was that we were learning all this stuff. In other words, we, there was, a, there was a, a, this large body of knowledge that it wasn't like it was new, like organic farming or uh, the blues or um, uh, the intelligence of dolphins or uh, astronomy and astrology or uh, um, all the things that were um, excitements in those years, but it was that it was these things were all of a sudden went out to a much larger audience. Here was this group of people, and I think it was, it was probably, be, a lot of it was due to the fact that you could get by on so little in the 60s. You could live on a very small amount of money, and you had time to explore things and to study things and to get involved with things. And, and drugs, of course, were all part of it. But you'd walk down Haight Street and, you know, I mean, you could find a place to stay with somebody. Um, and um, it was, uh, it was the, the Monterey Pop Festival was just an absolutely amazing event. And again, I don't really run across very many people who went there. I mean, Altamont seems to, I mean, uh, uh, Woodstock seems to be what people think was the big event of those years, but it was really Monterey, and Monterey was a, a place uh, where uh, people came along and uh, everybody showed up and it was, whoa, boy, look at all these people. I mean, they're, they're, it was healthy, it was, it was fun, it was, you know, the, the, they were putting flowers in the cops' guns and, and the cops were with it, and uh, so... Um, I think that the, and, and I, I actually tried to write a book about the, um, about the 60s back, and I started it in the 80s, and I, it just never came off. And I, did you want to say something, or are you? I'm oh, good. Okay. <laughs> if I, I want to say something, I will. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, I seem to be rambling on here. Um, so I, uh, and I was always kind of frustrated that I never could, I'd say to people, you know, it, it really wasn't the way you're reading about it. And, uh, and the, and by 19, so I was living in Big, so I moved down to Big, I moved to Big Sur to build this house and I lived in Big Sur for three years. And, um, and it's probably a good thing that I did because if I'd been living in San Francisco, I'd probably I'd probably be even more brain damaged from <laughs> chemicals than I am now. And uh, but I, we were living in Big Sur, and we would come up to San Francisco to go to the dances. Uh, spend a, every couple, two or three weeks, we'd make the trip to San Francisco and stay with friends. And the dances in those days were. Um, where it was word of mouth, um, uh, there wasn't that much going on, so there, was, it, there would be a dance at the Fillmore or at the Avalon. And um, uh, it, uh, was, it, was, it was probably 67, uh, it, it, it ended from my point of view in 67 uh, with the Summer of Love, because by that time, like a lot of things, too many people found out about it. And um, it was uh, the diggers had come to San Francisco from 
the Lower East Side, and they were a completely different um, influence, and they kind of took over the media and uh, started um, having, you know, they were the people that the media went to to talk to about it. And so it, it kind of rapidly fell apart on Hate Street anyway, but, uh, and everybody, and people said, well, that's it, the, you know, this revolution didn't go anywhere, and about all we got out of it was AIDS and uh, some uh, annoying ecological uh, tree huggers. But um, it, it really, the, the, the seeds for what pretty much, I think, in a lot of ways revolutionized the world came out of those times. It's just that people dispersed, and people went out and did stuff. And um, my part of it was had to do with building, and so I, that was sort of my focus. And I followed things through the, uh, you know, the framework of building. But anyway, um, so just to run on here, um, this was the house that we were building. It was looked out on the ocean in Big Sur. And... Um, it was really very, very large bridge timbers. It, they tore down a bridge at Duncan Mills on the Russian River, and they had uh, 12 by 12s that were hand-hewn out of redwoods and uh, 8 by 22s, uh, and uh, those are what we built this house with. And uh, we had uh, 8 by 22 beams that were 30 feet long and that we had to lift into place with a, a, a backhoe with a boom on it. They weighed about half a ton. And it was a really heavy house. Um, uh, we lived in this chicken coop on the ranch. Um, uh, and uh, then I got into a dispute with the owners of the house. I, I just, the, the, the architect really and I just didn't get along. And so I quit the job and I moved down to a place two miles uh, uh, north of Esalen and built this house here out of... Um, used, uh, mostly used materials, and the shakes were from a trees that I found in the woods down there, uh, old redwood trees, and I split shakes. And um, so this is where I was living uh, after the ranch, and uh, it took me about a year to get this house built. These, these right here are um, the uh, 8 by 12 double-track railroad ties, and then these here were 2 by 14s that were 30 feet long, that I got out of a warehouse from uh, Cleveland Wreckers. And people would come down from San Francisco to visit us. So we'd pick up kids hitchhiking, and uh, they'd come down and stay with us. And there was this uh, uh, beautiful pool in the canyon that the owners of the land where I was uh, had built. And um, this, you, if you look for this, if you go down to Esalen, it's Burns Creek. If you look back into the canyon, you'll see this pool, and it's still there. And by the way, I went back there in April, and uh, the, the, the Big Sur Historical Society had me come down and talk about building this house, so I'd become history. And, uh, and so I went down, and the, there's an artist who lives in the house now, and she just loves the house, and uh, we went swimming in the pool, and I had a great time. It was fun going back down there. But anyway, while we were building this house, um, I had two friends from Mill Valley that had gone down to build the Big Timbered House. We... Bucky Fuller came to Esalen, and we went and heard him, and we were intrigued by the idea of building lightweight structures, and um, where this thing we were building was definitely not lightweight. And so I, I built this as a shop, and, um, and then uh, here, was, here was the house from the road and the, 
This is the shop dome here, and this was a little greenhouse dome that I built. I never did get this thing sealed. And, uh, you know, I, I, I got better at sealing things later on. Um, so as a result of building domes down there, I got a job at a hippie high school called Pacific High School that was up in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And they, they, wanted, to, um, they wanted to build uh, living quarters for students. It, was a, it had started out as a Quaker school, and um, then it had it kind of gone long hair uh, in about 67. And they were busing kids up from Palo Alto and Menlo Park to the school, and it was very expensive. And they thought, why don't we make it into a, a, a live-in school? And so I left Big Sur, moved there, and started teaching the kids how... This is me over here when I had some hair, and it was not white. And, um, and so I was at this school for two years, um, and it was countercultural to the extreme, um, uh, it was, uh, and we, we operated out of, uh, by weekly meetings, um, on Monday, we would all get together and then we'd figure out how to, you know, how to conduct ourselves. And the, um, the kids, it was on 40 acres of land and the kids, I mean, I, I didn't really have any control. You couldn't control things there. The kids basically, when they would come to the school, they'd take acid and wander in the woods. Um, and so it was very countercultural. And But anyway, over the course of, uh, oh, oh yeah. Um, so the people who ran the school, the director and the financial guy, told the parents that this was a live-in school, although there was no place for the kids to live. And um, so the kids showed up in September about maybe... 35 kids, and there was no place to live except the, I was there. I was the dome teacher, and so I started uh, classes in dome building, and we started building domes. But in the meantime, they were all sleeping out on, in the, you know, under parachutes and in the woods, and uh, we started building right away. And uh, we, we got a lot of attention because, uh, you know, their 16-year-olds were building their own houses, and Domes have the advantage of looking good uh, in photographs, and, and, um, and it was, you know, and we, we really believed that we were, um, we were, you know, I, I was still with Bucky in those years that uh, we were going to find a new way of building that was more efficient and more ecological and more practical. So we, we had a, the first year was pretty good there, and, and we had these great pictures like this here of, you know, inspiring pictures of kids working, and and it really was good. I mean, no matter what it is you're doing, if you can find a common purpose and work together, um, it, 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 the first year there was pretty good. Um, uh, this, was, uh, this was actually one of the domes we built that didn't leak because we covered it with asphalt shingles. <laughs> but, you know, with kids, I mean, you know, the workmanship wasn't that great. This was my dome. Um, this was a dome built by Jay Baldwin, who uh, was sort of my partner at the school, and he was a Buckminster. He'd worked with Bucky Fuller, and this dome was built uh, was uh, built out of conduit that was uh, covered with vinyl pillows, inflated vinyl pillows that uh, were filled with nitrogen, and this was a very uh, you know this dome worked. It was practical. Um, uh, here's uh, so out of all this. I ended up getting into publishing, doing books on dome building, and like pictures like this, just 
you know, knocked people out. You know, what's not to like here? And um, that's me standing in my dome in a fisheye. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the, we had our media down, uh, if, if not our waterproofing, you know. <laughs> I, I'll say, you know, one thing we did at this school was we, we um, this is a dome by Peter Calthorpe, who's now a very well-known architect. Uh, he was 21 at the time, and he took spherical geodesics and stretched them into elliptical shapes. And this was a Pittsburgh plate gra glass gave us polyurethane foam, and uh, I didn't know what an awful material it was until after we built a couple of domes using it. Um, this here was a ferro-cement um, uh, bathhouse, and this was a radar dome that I found at an army surplus store that we used for uh, uh, showers. Um, and so we got up to where we had about 50 kids at the school, and you know, these wonderful shots like this, and the the thing, probably, the, as I look back, um, it certainly wasn't practical what we did, but we did aesthetic things. We stuck within the uh, uh, icosahedral geometry, so and we used vinyl for the windows, and uh, ten of the domes were plywood, and there was just never any chance of sealing them other than covering them with asphalt shingles, but we did do these patterns that photographed really well. Um, and the kids did these, the kids did the, you know, came up with these patterns themselves and they were really nice. Well, okay, it looks good in photographs. Well, you go back a couple of years later and, uh, and I, um, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was out of control. I mean, and, and. <laughs> These were some of the, you know, guys that, um, this guy was a teacher, Wayne, but the, other, the others were kids. They were, they were some really wonderful kids there. So, um, uh, at, 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 after, I was there two years. The second year wasn't that great. Um, and I, at that point, I moved to Bolinas. And um, uh, I'm just trying to think of when the Whole Earth Catalog, the Whole Earth Catalog came along about at that time, and I've got uh, this, and the Whole Earth Catalog was, I think probably everybody knows about it, but uh, it was a summary of all these things that we were all into at the time, and this is the, this is the first Whole Earth Catalog, which is a collector's item. Stuart Brand doesn't even have one of these things, and uh, actually, and actually before that came out, this book here came out called The Dome Cookbook by Steve Bear. This sold for $1. And I've never seen anybody that has one of these around, you know, <laughs> nowadays. And when I saw this book, um, I looked at this book and I thought, and it was, it was uh, typewritten on a manual type, typewriter. They're fine. Okay. Uh, and, um, and the guy had gone in and just penciled, with a pen, had crossed things out and corrected it. <laughs> And I thought, you know, it was unlike any book I'd ever seen. I thought, I, I thought I could do a book like that, you know. And that's really what started me in, you know, my 36 years by now of publishing was seeing this book. And, and also Stuart saw this before he did the catalog. Actually, when I met Stuart, which was probably in about, let's see, the first catalog was, yeah, 68. Um, I had already started to compile something similar to the Whole Earth Catalog because I was learning all this stuff. 
about organic gardening and building domes and self-sufficiency and making your own shoes and um, you know all the stuff that's in the catalog and I was going to do like a, and and I at that time I was starting to answer people's uh, letters about dome building and there started to be a lot of letters and I thought geez you know I, I, I better print something up so I don't have to say the same thing over and over again to everyone and um, about that time I met Stuart who was way ahead of me and um, was in the midst of of putting this uh, this book together, and so the book um, the book came out. And now, were you the shelter editor on the first no, Whole Earth catalog? No, okay. I wasn't. I, I, I the, he did the first one, and mm -hmm. I saw it. And I was I was actually living in Big Sur then. Um, this was before, well, yeah, this was before Pacific High School, and uh, I wrote a long letter to him about all the things that I knew about wood heating stoves and um, Ken Kern's owner-built home. And, and so uh, in those years, Stuart would do four supplements, quarterly supplements called the difficult but possible supplement to the Whole Earth Catalog. And so in one of those, there was a, I had a full page. And so from that point on, I became the shelter editor. Uh, the catalog was divided into um, land use, shelter, gardening, whole systems. And so I became the shelter editor of the catalog and worked on it um, uh, from then on. Um, there was, um, I've got a couple of them out there. There was the Whole Earth Epilogue. The Whole Earth Epilogue came about, I was, by that time I was living in Bolinas and the epilogue was, uh, was put together in Sausalito. And uh, it, it kept getting bigger and bigger. And um, the significance of the uh, Whole Earth Catalog, at least in my thinking, was that it was the first time that a West Coast book got East Coast distribution. And East Coast distribution was the only alternative to the big publishers uh, was, um, in those days, was book people in Berkeley. And Stewart started out with distrib distribu a distributor. Is the, they're the people who get your books into the bookstores and bill them and hopefully pay you. And uh, 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 Stewart, um, when the Whole Earth Catalog sold 100,000 copies, uh, it got the attention of uh, Random House. And Stewart moved the Whole Earth Catalog after this first one over to Random House. And so when I did... Um, my second book on dome building, Dome Book Two, uh, I went to Random House. <clears throat> and uh, so we, we ended up getting major distribution. Um, in those years, um, the editor-in-chief at Random House loved what was going on with the, in the counterculture. And so he took our book on Sight Unseen. And we, I mean, you'd never do this nowadays, but I printed 50,000 copies of Dome Book Two, the first edition. And we were using newspaper technology to do these books, um, which uh, involved, it was pre-computer. And um, so that opened up uh, a you know, 10-speed press, uh, Shambhala. Um, a lot of uh, uh, West Coast publications were able to get out there and get into the bookstores and uh, uh, to, uh, um, you know, have a you know, make a, sell a lot of copies. And, and uh, so the Whole Earth Catalog went on to sell something like a, a million copies. And um, 
for my part, I, uh, I came to Bolinas. Um, I built a, uh, I don't know if this is the last one I've got here. Yeah. Um, I, I, when I left the high school, I built, I built a, oh, here's Dome Book 2. Yeah, this came along, and, and there's copies of it out there um, if you want to look at them. And there's also a copy of, this is, this is Dome Book 1. This is the first one we did at the high school. And uh, we borrowed the Whole Earth Catalog's um, uh, production facilities. And then for Dome Book 2, we, all of, oh, about seven of us went in a van to a, uh, uh, a, a, a lake resort in the Santa Barbara Mountains and uh, in about a month's time produced Dome Book 2. And it just sold like crazy. Um, in those years... Um, that was what year, Dome Book 2? Uh, 1971. Yeah. So, Lloyd, let me ask you this. At what point, given the problems with waterproofing and everything else, but at what point did you make the shift to the conclusion that domes were not the right way to go. What year was it that that, or years was it that that shift took place? I remember early on when I got to Bolinas myself, and I came in 72, uh, that, or at least one of the things that sticks in my mind, I don't know if it's a direct quote from you or not, but it was about domes, and the quote was, smart but not wise. Yeah. And, uh, and so, and I was intrigued by watching the shift from somebody who'd been a, a pioneer of, of domes back to looking to the, for the sort of perennial wisdom of the great classic forms of building. And I'm curious about when that shift in your thinking took place and what it said about the culture. I mean, in my mind, I have this vision that the, the domes uh, were, in a sense, almost uh, like a, a psychedelic... Uh, architecture, and that the return to uh, 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 classical ways of building was almost like the return to the perennial philosophies of the great wisdom traditions as opposed to, uh, you know, uh, the sort of psychedelic consciousness. But I'm just curious when that took place and yeah. what was happening in the culture when it took place. Well, um, you know, I was having these we were having problems with domes, and um, as we were driving down the road to do production of this book right here, I, uh, out this long road, country road, I was looking at these rectili rectilinear farm buildings along the side, and I and I, I really had, you know, I mean, I'd started out with rectangles, post and beam houses, and then I'd gone the other way to lightweight polyhedral buildings are basically. They're all shell. In other words, it's not like a big roof that's an umbrella that covers your vertical walls, but the water flows over the entire surface of a dome. And I was looking at these shacks and barns and the as we were before we even put this book together, and I was thinking, geez, that really makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> and you can put you can put tin on the roofs. You don't have to you don't have to fool, fool around with silicone caulk and and, and expansion and contraction, and it kind of started a seed of thought. And so we, we got there and we, you know, put the book together, and it was a lot of fun to do the book. I mean, you know, we really had a great time with the book. And, I, and the book is, Dome Book 2 is really a good book. Um, I mean, it's a good book. It's not on a good subject. 
but but it, it's it's you know we had fun and we, we Bob drew cartoons and we had the ki some of the kids were with us and you know and the school was a lively thing and so anyway we got the book done and um, and I still hadn't converted um, but I was thinking about it and I came back to Bolinas and I still wanted to build one more dome. And what I, year was this now? Uh, that would have been. Uh, 71, mm -hmm. 71 to 72. So I built a dome in Bolinas. Um, uh, I, I, I actually covered it with shakes. I, I don't know if it's in here. Um, oh yeah, here it is. Yeah, that's me on the uh, left, and that's Billy Cummings up there on the hey. top. Uh, when he, Billy actually, I gave Billy his first carpentry job, um, and. Uh, uh, and so we, I covered it with uh, wood from uh, torn down barracks at Treasure Island. And then I, I went down to the beach and got uh, redwood off the beach and split shakes for the dome. And um, it, it actually did not leak. Um, and it was really a nice dome. Uh, that It was a plexiglass. By that time, I'd met a skylight manufacturer who told me how to do the windows. And so the, it was a plexiglass window. Of course, I had a little more money than we had at the high school. And so I built that dome, and here was the, the uh, connections. Um, uh, but, but still, um, it, it, it worked all right, but I couldn't subdivide it. I couldn't divide it. It was just one big room. I couldn't add anything onto it, because when you, if you add a if you want to add a room onto this wall here, you just build a roof off the wall. But if you want to add onto a multifaceted dome, you've got all kinds of angles to tie into. And I kept thinking about all that. And, um, and another problem was people were coming from all over the place to see the dome. Um, one night at dinner time, some guy knocks on the door. Well, I just came from Massachusetts, and uh, well, I'm eating dinner, man. Well, no, but we came all the way from, you know. <laughs> and, um, and so uh, uh, th there was that, and there, there were the difficulties I, you know, I was having with, with wanting to change it around. And, uh, okay, to tell you the truth. There we go. Okay, here, there it is. One day I took some mescaline. Right. And I walked up a copper mine creek. Uh, and I, it was really a nice day, and I uh, was sitting there watching the water skeeters and the, and the skeeting across the, scooting across the water and, you know, sun shining and water trickling, and I, came, I, just, I, I started walking back down the creek coming home, and I was thinking to myself, what if I came around the corner and in a meadow was a dome, and the dome was there because of me, because I published this book. And that's how people built domes. And it was disintegrating. They built it, they'd used some plastic material or something, and it was falling apart. And, that, and it, was, it would be my fault that, you know, that, that this thing was there. So that afternoon, I got home and I called up my agent. I said, Don, I'm taking Dome Book 2 out of print. And by this time, Dome Book 2 had sold like 160,000 copies. And he said, are you crazy? You know, I said, no, you know, I, I, I'm, I know what, I, I'm definite. I don't want any more domes on my karma. And, <laughs> and so I, I took the book out of print then. It was, and it was sort of a, a revelation. And, um, and then I somewhere, you know, on the 
future after that, I started thinking, well, I've got all these hundreds of thousands of people out there who um, have read the Dome book. I really should tell them that there are other ways to build. And so uh, at that, oh, and then another thing happened. The smart but not wise was I went to a, um, I went, I used to get, go to these uh, colleges would invite me to come and talk about domes, and I went to MIT. And at MIT, they were into all this futuristic stuff, and I was having my doubts by then and, um, about domes. And uh, so I got back from the conference at MIT, and I clashed with the guys at MIT because I was starting to look at rectilinear building and conventional building, stud frame building, as a more in, better in every way than, than polyhedral building. And um, I read something about Ishii, the Indian, who said about uh, white men that white men were smart but not wise. And so I wrote a, a I, I don't know if I have one out there, I wrote a little pamphlet, like a 16-page pamphlet that I printed up myself called Smart But Not Wise, and basically said, here's my experience with dome building. Um, here's why I think they don't work. That was, again, what year? Uh, 71. Yeah, okay. 71. Now, you published Shelter... Uh, the publication Shelter, this beautiful book, which had a big influence on many of us, in 1973. And it had uh, a series of different sections, one on caves, huts, and tents, one on Native Americans, on European timber, barns, uh, buildings, nomad living, and so on. But there was still a long segment on domes in here. Mm -hmm. So were you giving your smart but not wise message in the dome segment of shelter or um, were you still sort of treating it as uh, you know a sensible option if you were up for it uh, what we well we should yeah there, there well there was some interesting stuff going on with domes and I don't I'm just trying to remember actually we showed okay we started out the dome section yeah with um, with a, an article on the true inventor of the geodesic dome, which was not Buckminster Fuller. Mm -hmm. uh, we actually, we started, out the, no, we started out the dome section with a, a picture of a, a Samoan dome built with, quite different from geodesic domes, built with a, a thatch, built with palm fronds. And so we're saying, okay, there's other ki kinds of domes other than these high-tech domes that we were building. And then the second two-page spread was was on the true inventor of the geodesic dome, which was a guy in Germany in 1922. And it's a wonderful story uh, on the, uh, the first projection planetarium uh, was a, what, we'd not, what Bucky Fuller termed the geodesic dome. So I wanted to kind of straighten out that bit of history. And then, I don't know, what did we do with domes? Um, then smart but not wise. Mm -hmm. And then a section on all the aspects of technology which we felt were wrong, including McDonald's and, uh, and plastics. Because by this time, we'd experimented with polyurethane foam, which seemed like a wonder material, and found out that, oh, wait a minute, uh, w what kind of uh, toxic things are produced when are, are left behind when this stuff is, is manufactured? And what happens if a fire gets going, really gets going, with it, it's, it's like napalm, and so all, and and the vinyl that we had used at the high school disintegrates. Uh, flexible material doesn't 
do well in sunshine. And so all these things, we were... Um, right, you have this segment in here on yeah, Pacific yeah. High School Revisited. Yeah, showing and then, all then, the, yeah, and so then, and then uh, Drop City, which was Drop falling City apart. Revisited. And Pacific High School with these horrible photos, instead of these pristine uh, white domes with the attractive-looking long-haired kids building them, here's, here's the reality. So, I, 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 yeah. But I think we also showed some domes that were okay. And um, So, did you ever think about um, whether there really was a deep cultural analog between the dome experiment, the psychedelic experiment, and then the movement toward perennial forms of uh, wisdom in indigenous cultures and in classical European and American cultures that sort of took the impetus of the 60s past that psychedelic point and moved it uh, sort of back into a rediscovery of classic conditions. In other words, did you personally make the connection between the structures that you were studying and your own movement toward wisdom and building and the movement toward wisdom and consciousness that one could argue also matured as we moved out of the 60s and into the 70s? Well, domes were, um, it, it was kind of cool because if you, I mean, and it, it got me further into mathematics than I'd ever, uh, I never was good at math, but, but I really, when I learned about the uh, platonic solids and the Archimedean solids, and it, it was fascinating, and to think that you could make a building from these shapes, which uh, uh, was a, a very interesting concept. I think that it, it, domes were sort of like, they, they were the preferred form of building for the counterculture, um, probably because of people like us who made them look good, and um, because Bucky Fuller was very influential in those times, and they were kind of ethereal, they were abstract. and. Um, I came around to realizing there's no reason to think that a, 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 polyhedra, a polyhedra is going to end up being a good structure that's going to have to sit out in the wind and rain. My own conversion really was practical. Um, it wasn't that I decided that they weren't a, a good, uh, you know, sim, sim, symbolic, uh, the symbol was wrong. It was that they didn't function. No, I understand that it was a practical conversion. I'm just asking whether you ever thought, because you've thought about the cultural history of the 60s and you've thought about building, did you make any connection between the, um, the difficulties, the imperfections, uh, the, the structural problems of domes as a, as a building and the somewhat analogous movement away from certain aspects of the counterculture toward, uh, toward a, a more lasting wisdom? I, I don't know if the counterculture moved in that direction or not. I mean, it, it, I, mean I certainly wanted to see it move that way, but um, I mean, one thing about domes is, and the reason, part of the reason that, that our dome book was so popular was that we did, a, we did a drawing in there of a, a framework of a dome. And you could look at that and say, I understand it, you know, much more than you could uh, with, a, with a, a stud frame building. It was simple to understand. And so, and it appealed to nerds. 
um, you know, it appealed to the math science guys. And um, so they, you know, that, that, I mean, I think that was, I mean, am I answering your question or? Um, well, we're dancing around it. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, uh, that, that, I mean, that was part of the appeal of domes. I don't mm -hmm. know. I don't know if they're, I mean, there's still, domes are still around. Mm -hmm. And um, if you go to the solar energy uh, thing up at uh, Real Goods each year, there's still domes there, and there's still guys who are saying the same thing. And, and you know, the, the idea of a circle um, uh, is, uh, is a powerful one. And um, the, uh, so I, I, don't, I don't really know if the culture moved away from, I think that I think it's again it's the functionality is that they mm -hmm. they just don't work. Um, if you cover them with asphalt shingles, yeah, uh, they're okay. But then there's just, I I ended up writing a um, uh, something called refried domes, basically, which um, you know after because I still I don't get any questions nowadays, but I got questions for years about domes, and so I finally I did this and. We printed this over in San Rafael, I don't know, like 3,000 copies or something, and I would send it out to anybody, and then basically I would say, okay, here's my experience with dome building. If you want to, if you still want to build a dome, you know, be my guest. And, and we actually gave them the math in here, we, because we had, we had been the only place you could get the cord factors for domes. And um, so um, I did that, and I, I don't, but I don't know if, I never have thought about the culture and you know as to whether people because people are still building domes and mm -hmm. there still are dome companies and mm -hmm. um, and they and some people get get fixed on a on an idea and they they just don't don't give it up so moving on to to shelter and then homework and just as we end this part of the conversation uh, since you moved on from domes and have spent a lot of time on on hand-built houses and surveying uh, uh, all kinds of different forms of shelter around the world. Could you sort of say where you are now about uh, wisdom and and not only the present but the future of housing? I mean, as we go through this you know horrendous ecological crisis that we're in, if you were uh, uh, to say where you think we should move based on the time you've spent looking at hand-built houses, what would you say to people? Well, I mean, it's, it's such a different situation here than it was 30 years ago. I mean, it's like, you know, it's, I mean, the, the, the regulations uh, and the codes are so impossible now that, but, it, but if you were to think of, you know, if you're in Nevada or someplace Let's where, leave the codes aside. If we yeah. were just talking about wisdom and building, what would you say? Well, I'd say to, I mean, what I did when I quit dome building, I, when, I, when I was gathering information for shelter, uh, this is a picture in Ireland, and I, and I looked at this place and I thought, they cleared the field of the stones, and they made the fences out of the stones, and they also made the walls of their house out of the stones, and they planted barley, and after they harvested the barley, they, they used the stalks to cover the the roof, and then here's the you know here's the the uh, hay for the animals, and so 
you know, looking around at where you are, you know, where you are building, where you're living, at what the conditions are, and looking around at what materials are available, and uh, and there's just any number of things that can be done now. Um, if you if you live in um, British Columbia, it makes sense to build out of wood because wood grows up there, and 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 steep roofs are necessary to shed rain. And if you live in the desert, uh, adobe makes a lot of sense. And so, um, I mean, if I were to build, I, w I really wish I could build one more house because I would, you know, I I know what I would do. It'd what would be, you do? It would be stud construction, and um, I would have a. I would, I would have a, a, in the core, I would have, um, um, I'd have my heating and, and plumbing. So like the kitchen and the bathroom are back to back. I'd have uh, a, a coil or a, one of those little Holly heaters in the wood stove uh, so that I'd heat water in the wood stove during the winter when you've got a fire burning. But I'd also have a solar collector on the roof that would heat the water in the summer when the sun is shining. And um, I'd start out small maybe. I'd try to get, you know, I mean often if you're, if you have to work while you're, if you have a job and you have to work while you're building a house, you can't just take two years off. I'd, so I'd start, I'd get the, I'd probably get an Airstream to live in while I was building, you know. And, um, and but then get a, get a, you know, get your necessities together try to get the plumbing organized, and um, I would uh, have a, a, a floor that, I would have a, a wood floor, but down almost on ground level so that you could, facing south. So, I mean, these are all the things that I, I mean, my shop on my land now is in where the house should be. Um, but so that I, you could walk out from the kitchen uh, out into the garden, and I'd have a space out I mean, I'm, 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 I've thought this through. I, um, <laughs> uh, I think about it a lot. Um, I'd, I'd want to go outside from the kitchen into the garden and have a cooking area out there, uh, like a, a Weber uh, for, and, and a sink, because you can spend a lot of time outdoors in this climate. You can, you can eat outside and you can cook outside. And, um, you know, so I would approach it that way. I mean, a part of maybe a lot of what I try to do in my books is to tell people, um, you know, here's what I've learned and, you know, hopefully this is going to be of some use to you. And, um, and so I've kind of gotten, I don't know if I've really followed the subject of the 60s here, but uh, um, another thing that, that I've always thought a lot about is the feeling that a house gives you. Um, how, what it feels like to be inside. And um, I I've really been I've been around lots and lots of people who've built houses. One thing that I've found out is that very often, well, first of all, couples break up when they build a house. Um, uh, you know, um, um, uh, and 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 a lot of times the 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 guys are looking at the house the way it looks from the outside. I'm sorry if I'm if this is sexist, but. And the women are looking at it as the way it operates, at the way it functions from the inside. And um, the, uh, I guess, um, I had a, one time I, I went, I was in England and I went into a house and had a very low ceiling, like almost six feet. And there was a fire burning in this room. 
and it just hit me this feeling of of ah uh, oh, this is such a you know it was like a it maybe was in my genes or something but it this was something that was very deeply satisfying and so um, your materials that you choose and uh, um, the surfaces and the you know the way you set things up it it all that's all something that I think is really important and that and it's really it's kind of if you ever if any of you ever seen have seen Dwell magazine I mean I don't know who those people are um, who uh, live in houses like that but I mean there's nothing on the walls it looks you know stainless steel and you know and and I, I, you know, there's a certain, I mean, I, there's a certain thing to really slick architecture, but um, I sometimes wonder if, if, you know, me and the, my friends and the people who like things like I do are not sort of like the, the book lovers in Fahrenheit 451. <laughs> uh, you know, there's all these, I uh, mean, because I, we get tr tremendous feedback. I mean, nowadays, I, I just can't believe it. When we go to the Solar Energy Festival or um, at the Green Festival, um, this book changed my life. Um, I quit my job and went to work as a builder, and now I'm a contractor. We built a house, you know. All the, I mean, it's not because of me. It's because of the people who we showed in these books. And, but in spite of that, it doesn't mean that the books sell in the bookstores. And so I sometimes wonder what direction things are going in. I, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it might, and we just sort of out there in a kind of a, a little wing of people who like houses to feel good and be aesthetically pleasing and a good place to be on a cold night around a fire and a place to cook and, you know, get well when you're not feeling good or I don't know. No. Lloyd, what I want to do now, first of all, thank you for this very yeah. much. And what I'd like to do now is to just open this conversation up um, it seems to me there are two themes that are going here. One is the theme of the sort of trajectory of construction and Lloyd's history of, you know, coming through the dome period and then this exquisite work that he's done with hand-built houses since then. And we may get to look at a few more uh, slides in a little bit. Uh, and the other thing is the cultural history of what happened in the 60s and so on. Uh, let me just offer my own brief perspective on that and then open this up. Just before I came out here, I was an assistant professor at Yale uh, with a joint appointment in the political science department and, uh, and uh, the medical school in psychology. And so I was in New Haven during the, you know, the whole period of the Black Panthers and, um, uh, and I was the, the guy at Yale who was teaching the course on the counterculture. I was the assistant professor teaching the course on the counterculture. So I have a narrative a little like Lloyd's, but not based in what was happening in San Francisco. Um, you know, Bill Clinton has this uh, wonderful line. He says that if you think what happened in the 60s was on the whole a good thing, you're probably a Democrat. And if you think on the whole it was a bad thing, you're probably a Republican. <laughs> and, you know, uh, we all, particularly those of us who came out to uh, Bolinas and uh, I came out in 72 uh, and um, so we got to see both the incredible beauty and vitality of the counterculture and we got to see the cost and particularly you know people like Harriet who taught in the schools and, and so on we got to see you know the lost kids and uh, we got to see the impact on family structures and and you know the impact of drugs and lots and lots of things many of which we still um, 
uh, deal with. So if I were composing a narrative building on Lloyd's, which I really love and which informed me, um, I would say that, that the counterculture sort of subdivided and that part of it remained the sort of drug-focused, um, you know, um, uh, the drug-focused aspect of it, which continued to both be creative for some people and to have a lot of casualties. But another part of it um, went into these perennial forms of wisdom, whether it was in spiritual life or in architecture or whatever it was. There was a movement, there was like a, a whole fresh look at life that took place. And there was a movement into perennial and sustainable forms of wisdom at a philosophical, religious, literary, cultural level. And that we've continued to live with that. And for me, my own narrative, uh, particularly since uh, uh, James Stark and Penny Livingston Stark came to the Commonwealth Garden and this incredible group of young people, including Matt and Rachel and their baby who are here with us today. Uh, but I saw this unbelievable vitality of the young people who were showing up to study uh, with Penny and James in the garden. And, um, and I feel, and this is again is an extrapolation, that at different iconic levels that the whole Obama phenomenon in politics and these amazingly uh, energized, able young people who are showing up in the garden, that somehow the people who were formed in the 60s have finally found a connection to a new generation and new set of cultural opportunities uh, that represent the next evolutionary stay, step in that cultural trajectory. Now, that's just my narrative, okay? but at least it's a working narrative. So what I'd like to do is to open this up and just to ask, let's start with culture and then go on to building. What are the other narratives in the room about um, the 60s and what's happened since? Who would offer a different one? Who would improve on Lloyd's or mine? Or who has some thoughts on that? Yes, Stuart. I'm just coming up to my mind, it's. Um Around the 60s was also the, the death of modernism. So you had the kind of the whole theory of the avant-garde that we were kind of, and I love the idea of the dome as a symbol maybe of the failed precept of the hippie revolution in the way like you're talking about that we had to go back to a perennial philosophy. Right. And but at the, when you were doing domes and everything, we thought that we were going to create the new structure of the new world. And I like when you talked about the domes being more ethereal, they were less straight. <coughs> I mean, they, they answered a lot of our questions about how can we do things in a new, more beautiful, more sensible way without really understanding that thousands and thousands and thousands of years of culture had kind of refined these perennial forms. And yet we thought, hey, we're smart enough, we're hip enough, we're just going to blow the whole thing out and we're going to create a new world. And yet, as we all know, it didn't happen. Yeah, I like that a lot. Other comments? Yes, Arthur. Uh, isn't building a dome just building an equation? Do you want to respond to that? You're, you're making an equation out of wood. Yeah. You, you. And, and that's not very simple. <laughs> 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 building equations. That's it. 
Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. You had a comment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. I think for me, um, the whole thing about the '60s was about possibility, mm -hmm. and I was very interested to see some of your publications out there and realize that there were not just one book, the the um, you know the whole Earth catalog, but you you published two books that had a tremendous influence on me. The other one was Wildwood Wisdom, oh, which yeah. was published originally the year I was born, but I had a copy as a kid. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in the New England woodlands, and I used to think, with that book, man, I could survive out in those woods. And I had the same feeling with the whole Earth Catalog. And so I think that sense of the possibility uh, was very different from, say, my parents' generation who came back from World War II and wanted to go back to the traditions as they knew them and, and sort of re-enmesh their lives in that traditional way, whereas I was in the hate in the 60s too, and, and, and in Oregon with the political movements, and, and it was just all about possibility. And that undercurrent has really shaped my life uh, with building and with life, with, how I, with my life choices. Uh, I mean, I think it was like we wanted to throw out everything old, and you know, I mean, I remember talking with a friend of mine in the 60s about the new consciousness. and that was coming along and we really thought it was everything was you know and I mean look who we've got for a president now you know thinking that things were really changing I mean it's just back to you know so some things but I think part of it was that we were looking for new ways to do things and 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 so we we cut a lot of slack for you know the you know um, whether things worked or not but there were a lot I mean there, there were a lot of things that were tried out then and that were um, that, that people got into that did work. I mean, the 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 homework book is actually uh, what I realized when we were putting together homework, and also this book I'm working on now, which is on carpenters up in Canada, is that these were these are success stories out of the '60s. That there was a lot of I don't know if I mentioned that in my talk about the what I said about the '60s, but there was a lot of stuff that worked that uh, doesn't tend to get written up. I mean, a lot, you know, every, you know, tons of things that, you know, came out of those. What are your examples of that? Well, ecological awareness. Yeah. Um, the green building is something that's mm -hmm. kind of recent that's really caught on. Mm -hmm. um, organic foods. Yeah, organic, oh, yeah, mm -hmm. organic farming and mm -hmm. gardening and, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, 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 the computers. Computers, mm -hmm. I mean, if you mm -hmm. consider that a good force. Uh, mm -hmm. Um, music, music, you know, of all kinds being made um, available to people. Um, yeah, there are lots of examples. I just wondered what yeah. yours were. Let's hear some others. Uh, Arthur, yeah. Yeah. Other comments? Yeah. Yeah. You. Yeah. Uh, well, I grew up in, in the 50s in, in mm. Boston, in a third generation Boston family. Mm. And, and, and for me, um, that, that was a, a very frozen time. People were sick of the war. They just mm. wanted to move to the suburbs and, and chill. And, mm -hmm. 
and you know retrench and 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 so it was a really boring, kind of stultified time and 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 I I came to uh, Berkeley in in '65 and and uh, it was a, it was a complete awakening and I could immediately see the excitement of saying okay we're we're tired of all of that the way things have been done go to something completely different. And the Dome is one example of that. It's just radically different. And there was a lot of excitement in that and a lot of really good ideas. Um, uh, but but um, there, there wasn't a lot of attention focused on the practicalities. And I, and I think that's why a lot of it failed, not only in Domes, but in, say, communes, which most of which failed because they didn't really understand how a an organization, what an organization needed to do and how it needed to discipline itself to to function properly. And, and almost all of them failed for those reasons. And, and and there were a lot of health problems because people didn't pay any attention to sanitation and all of that. And, but but now, um, and, and so then there was a reaction against that. Okay, the hippies were, you know, out of control and now we got to go back to a more disciplined society. So it went back into, you know, hierarchical control. And, but now I see this resurgence going on where, you know, we're looking back and, oh, there were some good ideas there. It's just that they didn't get the scrutiny and, and, and careful planning that needs to implement them. And it's coming back now. And, and it, I mean, I've been mostly focusing on alternative energy and, and, all, and all that old solar heating, you know, stuff and wind power um, is now coming back in, in, in practical... Practical and new um, forms, and, yeah. And, and, and appropriately subsidized right. and, and, and appropriately sized and integrated into the grid and all of that. It yeah. really works. Before I call on some other people, I just want to say I would love to hear from some, without pushing anybody, some of the younger people in the room about their experience of... Uh, sort of what was worthwhile and not worthwhile in the 60s. So just love to hear from you. So we had a couple of comments. You had a comment and you had a comment. And Sorry, There were other things being made around back then besides yeah. domes. Was that what I found interesting? People uh -huh. building out of, in Big Sur, out of wine barrels and things like that, mm -hmm. ovals and so this mm -hmm. shape. What you said about the feeling of being in the room, I think that's what we wanted was a mm -hmm. different feeling in the room. Circle madness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. in the yeah. And your comment? Excuse me. I was just curious about our very own dome that, they, that we have here in in Belize. What's the uh, history of that? There's two of them. Mm -hmm. I know of the one. Mm -hmm. Well, the Seedman's Dome, mm -hmm. and then there's the the greenhouse that's used as a greenhouse farther out on Poplar. Mm -hmm. What is what are there? Seedman's was a uh, that was built by. Um, Bill Beckman, Bill, yeah. Bill and it was a, a, a it was called a peas dome. It was a plywood. When did he build that? You know? Yeah, he. I, when I first came to Bolinas, he was working on it, like in 1970, mm -hmm. and it was a, a large faceted. It was a you know they they it's still the, probably the type that they make, and the mm -hmm. other one was all plexiglass, and that used to be up on a pedestal. Uh, and they, the, those guys, they were rock and rollers from L.A., and they built that the same time I built my dome. Mm -hmm. so. Burr. Yeah, just playing off what some other people said and what Don said about some of these things, not getting the scrutiny they deserve, but, but a lot of the, some, some of the things we were doing in the 60s um, not only weren't getting a lot of scrutiny, they were coming out of, uh, I think, out of uh, ideals 
and, and not very clear ones necessarily, and, and ideas and concepts and slogans uh, for some of it, and um, uh, and that they've gone. I think the dome is a good symbol for for a lot of that. I mean, you can mm -hmm. say the same thing about drugs. You can say the mm -hmm. same thing about the sexual revolution, mm -hmm. and and how some of those patterns have changed too, and that we've uh, uh, with reexamination, uh, our generation and, and subsequent generations have, have, you know, not going back, going back to the received wisdom mm -hmm. uh, that we were, that if, uh, that we grew up with in the 50s, that mm -hmm. we kicked the traces out mm -hmm. from under mm -hmm. in the 60s, but reinventing mm -hmm. uh, some of the rediscoverings that, mm -hmm. you know, gee, there was maybe some reason for some of those rules mm -hmm. uh, other than, that made sense other mm -hmm. than that they were handed down to us, mm -hmm. um, and that's that was uh, true in uh, certainly in construction. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the dome story is just a great, great example mm -hmm. of that. I think. Mm -hmm. And Lo Lloyd's been uh, it, inspiring a lot more than dome builders, mm -hmm. inspiring a lot of uh, people in other ways of working construction mm -hmm. since. Rachel. So I just want to offer my perspective of what I've heard here and what I see happening on the farm. We've got a lot of young people coming in with just um, amazing passion and picking up on a lot of things, themes that have been talked about today. And the difference I see is um, the internet. And that, to me, seems like a really profound difference because, I mean, it's amazing when we're talking about something in the garden, we're like, oh, I wonder about that. And like five minutes later, everybody's on their computer, they're like, oh, look, I found this, 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 and all this information. And so instantly, you get to feedback on what other people are doing, whether, I mean, because anybody can self-publish on the internet. And so I think that's a really unique part of the movement now, is there's so much information that's so available, and we can really learn from each other and share information more rapidly. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd want to just mention something. That, uh, there's a, uh, um, a weekly, it's, it's what I think is the electronic whole earth catalog, and it's called Cool Tools. And if you go in on the web, if you type in Cool Tools, just one word, it's, uh, the guy's name is Kevin Kelly. Oh, sure. And uh, he puts, a, he has a blog, which he's got 185,000 people subscribed to. And he's also got a, a newsletter. To get the newsletter, you have to do a review of something. And he's got about 2,500 people on that list. But it's wonderful. It, it doesn't use paper. And it's, every, every week I get a, uh, an email. And you can do it if you, if you want to review some item, you know, a flashlight or a, you know, a computer program or anything. Um, but uh, it, they'll, it'll be like uh, six or eight different items, exactly like they used to have in the Whole Earth Catalog. And I, I find it really useful. I mean, all kinds of stuff I've gotten out of it. You know, here's a shirt that somebody recommends, or here's a, uh, you know, here's a, a really great knife, um, or here's a book. It's called Cool Tools, and it's by it's Kevin Kelly. Mm -hmm. And it's a, you can go to kk.org and find it if anybody's, you know, interested in the whole earth catalog type information. Burr, you had another comment? I think some folks just touched on some things that, that to me, my, my narrative of mm -hmm. uh, what started really got 
rolling in the 60s, the fundamental change, was that about change itself, how change occurs, mm -hmm. uh, and that the balance between change coming top down versus bottom up got radically changed, yeah. Yeah. and that change much more could be bottom up. Uh, I've thought of the whole Earth Catalog in the past as sort of a, a primitive early version of the internet, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and that now is just you know mm -hmm. beginning to fulfill, uh, mm -hmm. show us some idea of what sort of promise there mm -hmm. is in in. Uh, bottom-up change, mm -hmm. uh, stuff that uh, Michael and Cheryl you saw really start to explode in the environmental sphere in the Rio summit, mm -hmm. uh, for example, um, mm -hmm. of, of that sort of change going global with citizens' mm -hmm. organizations and so on. But, mm -hmm. but to me, that's the, the fundamental change that really got mm -hmm. rolling in the 60s, mm -hmm. bottom-up change. Well, Steve Jobs said something uh, a few years ago about the, the role that the Whole Earth Catalog, he said when he was a kid, he was reading the Whole Earth Catalog. When I, when I was working for Stuart, he had us, he had these punch cards that you had to put a skewer through. I mean, I hated it. You know, but really what it was, it was early computer stuff. And then people are recognizing the role that Stuart has had in the web, you know, that's really significant. Absolutely. James Stark, back there. Um, and then Harriet Cosman. the art of questioning forward in the 60s, um, where you just weren't doing one thing, you were thinking about what you were doing, and you were thinking about a bigger picture. Mm -hmm. And I think that mi micro and macro approach to living kind of took off and moved forward a little bit mm -hmm. in that time. Um, also, the thing that I haven't really thought about until recently is about the 60s because there was a, some feeling that kind of failed to launch it and transform. But then I started thinking about that in, in a way what we're doing is we, we developed an appreciation this is an intergenerational thing. This isn't kind of like a one shot and everything's going to be cool. It's an intergenerational thing. And, and, and really we're kind of becoming the elders to fill in a whole culture of change. So because all the change was happening at the gra grassroots with the under 30 group, mm -hmm. but uh, the, the people that were older were not buying into exactly all this. Mm -hmm. Whereas now, and what's exciting for me, is we're moving in that time where us as elders who were the 20s and 30 year olds back then mm -hmm. are now the elders and the people in between have a shared vision, so we're developing a whole cultural mm -hmm. shared vision of living on the earth in a new way. Mm -hmm. And that really gets me excited about what the re new responsibility for many of us who are in the room and the fact that there aren't a lot of young people mm -hmm. is our role and responsibilities to join hands with the 20-year-olds <coughs> and the teens now to um, say, yes, go for it, we'll support you, and to bring in the wisdom that wasn't necessarily there and the experience and how to think about things in a deeper way than we were because we were having way too much fun at the same time as trying to do some of these things. But, you know, because there wasn't a lot of guidance right. for us in direction. So That's really beautiful. That's very helpful. Harriet. Yeah, I was just thinking about that time of, um, of the 60s that it was such a time of empowerment. Right. You know, and I don't know where we got it. I, mm -hmm. I don't know where it came from. Maybe it was some sort of reactionary thing, but 
when you talk about possibilities, yes, the possibilities were there, and we were ready to explore the possibilities like Lloyd did. Mm -hmm. But we just did it. We just questioned authority, and when the authority said, we couldn't, don't mm -hmm. do that, mm -hmm. we did it anyway. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think that, to me, was the biggest difference mm -hmm. of, of what's happening now, because we were so, um, we just didn't know our vulnerability. We just, mm -hmm. just went against authority mm -hmm. and did what we thought was mm -hmm. the right thing to do, and mm -hmm. sometimes it didn't work, but mm -hmm. sometimes it did. We were on a roll. Yeah, mm -hmm. we were on a roll. <laughs> <laughs> yes. oh, uh, well, I like what you were trying to do here early on about the correlation between the building and what was happening in the culture, which mm -hmm. I think is, is very significant. Mm -hmm. And I think part of what was going on in the 60s was not a new thing, but it was a reaction to a failed experiment, and the experiment was in the 50s, because mm -hmm. there had been up to that point multi-generational people in a home, you had a family circle, and then in the 50s, all of a sudden, there was there were boxes for everything. You had the dad's room, you had the mom's mm -hmm. whatever sewing room, laundry, whatever she was supposed to do. The kids had their room and it was, then the parents were kind of somewhere else. So it was, I think the 60s was a reaction to the boxing up. And that's oh, very interesting. why the, the circle got to be more significant because we were trying to get back to the family circle, to the fire circle, whatever, and the mm -hmm. dome was a great concept in that, but it was making, trying to make a ball out of blocks, which <laughs> is not going to work very well. It's a great concept and a nice experiment, but making a ball out of things mm -hmm. with edges, isn't. it's not tree-like, it's not um, the way huts go, it's it's a different kind of a thing, but I think the culture and as the women's movement came into play became softer, rounder, and we were looking for the round. And I think instead of, of I think we need to remember that we are spiraling mm -hmm. as we go through our culture or our civilizations that we can come back and touch things we don't have to pick up everything but we touch those things that worked and bring them into our new way of thinking so mm. I think what we did was, was fabulous absolutely to so many of us who were struggling with I remember um, could you summarize yes yeah. I will I was going to say uh, Gloria Steinem did a, a talk on the uh, sexism in architecture, mm. which stuck with me really a lot, mm -hmm. the tall, straight buildings and the lower round buildings, mm -hmm. which was very much That's beautiful. Yes, comment. You, well, yes. I was going to say, I could sing a different song in the 60s of her sister. <laughs> <laughs> and I went a very conventional route. I went yeah. to your graduate school, yeah, yeah. and then I was a, um, uh, a teacher in the various universities. Yeah, yeah. And for me, I discovered SDS. Mm -hmm. and progressive labor mm -hmm. and Martin Luther King and I got fired repeatedly for mm -hmm. marching behind somebody mm -hmm. and um, I think that that movement went as far as it could it beat itself against so many authorities it could only get so far but the real change in America this is not me who said this but Julius Lester Wilson the real change in America is generational change mm -hmm. so 30 years later the, that movement 
brought something to fruition. So what it brought to fruition was a new egalitarianism, uh, a new belief in people. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I just see that as kind of a rolling wave. I mean, mm -hmm. you could do this over and over again. You could say the Viennese uh, incrustations of their buildings led to the Bauhaus. <laughs> Which led to, you know, and and so I think you can say that mm -hmm. uh, about about this kind of stuff too. That, that we fought as hard as we could, and then after yeah. a while, Shape and was developed. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you had a comment. Yeah, I just um, wanted to say that when I was back in high school, I really was so envious of all the people who got to live in the 60s. It was so cool. <laughs> and seeing those, those movies that kind of like remade 60s narratives, I was like, wow, I, I really want to live in something like that. And I don't feel that envy anymore because I've gotten to find, I think, something that attracted me so much in those times, which is that possibility for change. Mm -hmm. And that that is still so much in existence. And wow, Bellinas, like what a community for that. Mm -hmm. um, and just to sort of maybe add something on to what James said about um, mentorship is that people in my generation, I'm 25, um, my parents, my, my mother, she, she's still pretty conventional. A lot of my family is, is still, mm -hmm. they're, they're not, they kind of think mm -hmm. I'm crazy. Um, and I have a lot of friends who feel that way too. So it's so exciting for me to come to a room full of people who are my elders, who are interested in these things. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't think you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so just an encouragement, you know, sometimes we don't, we don't know where to look for you guys, and we don't know where to look for us, but if we could make some more intergenerational connections, I think that would be a very cool thing. Yes? I think the other aspect that happened as a consequence of all the exploration was the inner mm -hmm. exploration mm -hmm. that, you know, the whole movement toward analyzing, looking at, evaluating ourselves mm -hmm. and other religions and mm -hmm. uh, the human, I don't know what we call it anymore, the something movement. Human potential. Human potential. <laughs> you know, and I mean, this was like a hotbed of that stuff. Right. area, you know. That's very important. Thing. And I came back from living in Europe during the first half of the 60s and went into a high school to teach and I had no idea what these creatures were that I was teaching. They were like aliens. My head was nowhere near there because I hadn't lived through you know, that transition I had been gone. Because it happened fast. It did. Thank you. Yes, you had a comment. Um, well, I, I, um, actually I lived in Belize in 1963. And there, somebody said to me, oh, there's no one there. <laughs> but it was really quite beautiful. And friends of mine, I'm an artist, and I've, I've been in art school. And friends were going to art institute and living in Stenson. And, we, and somehow we got a free house in Bolinas and jobs and from the Sharons. And so it was really this exquisite, beautiful place to be. And all our friends lived in San Francisco. And, um, and who were very creative and, and artists or poets or musicians mostly, you know, and a few mathematicians. And um, so I've, we all, I think 
we mostly felt like we were just these great explorers, like Christopher Columbus or something, you know, in a sense. And saying, and we could say, and we could say, no, we're not doing things the same way as our parents or the authority figures were saying. We could say no, and it would work. We could actually yeah. not do it, and other people would say, oh, me too, and. And Hay Street only had an ice cream store, which was great. Handmade ice cream from bleak, from uh, I think it was actually from maybe Mill Valley blackberries. And um, but it was like this undercurrent of everyone sort of felt this incredible energy. And there were older poets and and Buddhist teachers in uh, San Francisco. And um, so you had a good time. Well, no, it was like it was like exploring, but also like yeah. um, then we went. I was an organic farmer in. Um, I'm going to have to ask you to summarize. Yeah, like, good. You know, Thank you. So it was like, and I feel like that, that is they were we were like seeds, all of us. Yeah. And some sprouted and some didn't. Uh, I just want to say we've all been sitting for quite a while now, and so um, first of all, Lloyd, thank you for yeah, a fabulous sure. presentation. We're really grateful to you. For this.